Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today, so Associate Professor Shahar Hamiri, who's in international politics at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. He, uh, he used to be at um, Murdoch University, where I, where I in fact uh, met him some time ago, and his work focuses on security and development in Asia. He has a current ARC-funded project on the effects of state transformation on China's interactions with Southeast Asia. And he's got recent co-authored books titled International Intervention and Local Politics with Cambridge in 2017 and Governing Borderless Threats, also at Cambridge in 2015, and his work has appeared in many journals. Um, he's going, the title of his talk today is The Development Insecurity Nexus in China's Near Abroad, Rethinking Cross-Border Economic Integration in an Era of State Transformation. But it is a great pleasure to be here again. Um, I haven't been uh, here for a number of years, uh, but um, hopefully um, we'll find my way uh, down this side of the city a bit more often than uh, in the case since I moved here. Um, so this talk, as uh, Lou um, already indicated, is part of a bigger project that's funded by the Australian Research Council. Um, and the project is uh, together actually with Dr. Lee Jones from Queen Mary University of London, but also with Sean Breslin from Warwick University. This paper, however, has been authored by Yi Zheng Tso from uh, Shenzhen University, uh, who um, uh, is uh, actually a collaborator on a, a number of publications that we have out of this project. Um, but um, th this paper, um, as is often the case, when I was asked uh, to nominate a paper for this presentation, it was quite a long time ago, um, and at that point, this was still work in progress. Unfortunately, now it's not work, well, depends how you look at it. Uh, it's not work in progress anymore. It's actually been accepted for the uh, Journal of Contemporary Asia and will be published there, I think, early view fairly shortly because we've sort of done the proofs and everything else. Nonetheless, because this is part of a bigger project, uh, your insights and input uh, are still very important and will help us shape uh, other parts of the project. So moving right along... Um, you might have noticed, by the way, that I cut the title a little bit. It was a very long title, and, and it just didn't fit quite in there, but um, it, the gist is the same. So, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, I'm sure everyone in this room knows exactly what, what we're talking about here, is a very large-scale um, like blueprint, I think is probably a good term to describe it, uh, that puts together a number of projects that are designed to spread Chinese-funded infrastructure uh, that links China transnationally to other countries. Um, so it's designed basically to improve economic engagement between China and the rest of the world. It had a focus largely on Southeast Asia and Central Asia, but it's since been expanded. But I think it's fair to say that these regions remain very central to, to the Belt and Road Initiative, at least as we understand it today. What is surprising about the Belt and Road Initiative is that given that it is often uh, presented as some kind of an alternative to, if you like, Western models of development, actually... It, it's, its concept is quite similar, uh, in some ways at least, to a more conventional understanding of development. And what I'd like to highlight here are two particular aspects. The first one is the link between security and development, and the second one is the so-called interdependent thesis. The first one essentially assumes that if you have development, you will have stability and security accompanying it. This is a very liberal understanding of, of, the, of development although it has a Chinese variant that has been described as the Chinese peace thesis instead of the liberal peace thesis. But the big difference here is that instead of emphasizing intervention to reshape societies, the emphasis instead is on state-led, infrastructure-driven development, but nonetheless the expectation is that the outcome will be the same. The second side of it is the interdependent thesis, 
which essentially argues that when you have growing economic interdependence between countries, you're going to have better bilateral relations, cooperation, and ultimately international peace. Both of these elements are key to the Chinese thinking about the Belt and Road Initiative. I wouldn't go as far as arguing that they underpin the Belt and Road Initiative, but they're definitely seen as one of the biggest, uh, if you like, uh, 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 pros involved in uh, rolling out this, this uh, set of uh, projects. Both of these ideas actually predate the Belt and Road Initiative in China. We've seen their antecedents in, um, and I'll describe this a little bit more later, in campaigns like the Great Western Development Campaign, which was designed to uh, build up China's um, more remote, more impoverished Western provinces. Um, again, uh, many of these provinces have uh, large minority populations, uh, and the idea was that through Chinese, uh, especially central government directed infrastructure, construction, and other forms of development there, you will stabilize those regions as well. Similarly, the Go Out campaign where Chinese large, especially large state-owned companies were encouraged to go out into the world and invest and do all sorts of things out there was also encouraged through a discourse of harmonious worlds so that the, these forms of engagement will also be then contributing to China's uh, uh, wider diplomatic agendas in the world. In the Belt and Road Initiative, both of these ideas are clearly present right from the very beginning uh, in, in various uh, formal documents, but also in official statements. This is from before the announcements that President Xi Jinping made to actually announce the Belt and Road Initiative. This is from a party work, uh, uh, working uh, uh, work, a workshop that a party held in 2013, where Xi Jinping basically says, and this is uh, how it's been translated, Maintaining stability in China's neighborhood is the key objective of peripheral diplomacy. We must encourage and participate in the process of regional economic integration, speed up the process of building up infrastructure and connectivity, and so on. So you can clearly see a link there between the idea that by building these economic uh, uh, connections to other countries in the region, you also stabilize these countries. This quote is from the... Um, Action and the Vision and Actions document, uh, which was led by the National Development and Reform Commission, which lays out some kind of a broad uh, template for the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and in there, you can see, if you like, the uh, uh, Chinese version of the interdependence thesis. So it basically says improved transnational co uh, uh, infrastructure will generate win win cooperation, which is a term that the Chinese government really likes, as many of you would know, um, and build. Um, Sorry, I don't know how that got there. A community of shared interests, destiny, and responsibility featuring mutual political trust, economic integration, and cultural inclusiveness. Economic cooperation is expected to serve the objectives of mutual benefit and common security. So again, you can see that very much present in the official language of these documents. So I'm going to look at how these ideas work in practice, or don't, by looking at the, the particular case of China's relations with Myanmar. Myanmar, uh, as many would know here, is a very, it's quite a large Southeast Asian country. It is an excellent case study for looking at this particular issue. Why is that? Firstly, unlike many other Southeast Asian countries, China, broadly speaking, has had very significant economic interaction with Myanmar dating back a number of decades, going uh, back to at least the late 1980s. This is uh, not so much the case in some other Southeast Asian countries. And part of the reason for that was because of the economic sanctions that uh, Myanmar had uh, been um, subjected to for a number of years and are still partly in place. These economic sanctions essentially uh, made China one of the main sources of investment and trade uh, with Myanmar. 
So we have this record of long-term and deep engagement that we can sort of draw on when we uh, look at the, um, at the Belt and Road Initiative. The second reason uh, is that it's actually specifically identified in the Vision and Actions document as one of the key partners for the implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative in Southeast Asia. And finally, and I'll elaborate on that in just a little while, Myanmar has characteristics that we think are quite similar to a lot of uh, developing countries, and therefore by looking at what's happening in Myanmar, we can then draw wider conclusions, we argue, in relation to how the Belt and Road could play out in other developing countries, especially in Southeast Asia. Now, all these decades of economic engagement between the two countries have actually created considerable, uh, well, you would argue if it's interdependence, but considerable, uh, very deep levels of economic engagement there. So for Myanmar specifically, over a third of the investment stock is, is from China. This is by contrast with Australia, where I think less than 3% or something like that of the investment stock is from China, just by way of comparison. 43% of Myanmar's exports are to China. This is uh, from 2017. The figures might have changed a bit, but not too much. 35% of Myanmar's imports are from China. This is especially prominent in Yunnan province, which is uh, a province in China's southwest, which I'll uh, dis discuss in quite a bit more detail later on. So for Yunnan province, you might even argue that there is a, a, a real interdependence with Myanmar in the sense that Yunnan's own economy depends to a considerable extent on these economic engagements with China. 42% of imports and 15% of exports from, uh, to and from Yunnan are with Myanmar. So going by the Chinese peace thesis and going by the interdependence thesis, we would have expected this long-term economic engagement to have produced security and stability, and also better intergovernmental inter relations. In reality, we've got the complete opposite in these countries. We've got insecurity in the borderlands, and we've got worse bilateral relations between the two countries. So this is something that I think is worth explaining. In Myanmar, we've seen, uh, if we uh, discuss insecurity in Myanmar, resulting from this economic engagement, we've seen land grabs, uh, it should have been environmental degradation, organized crime, and escalating ethnic conflict. This is in a context where ethnic conflict has been a long-term problem. In, on the Chinese side, we've seen problems of smuggling, illegal gambling, uh, which uh, also involved uh, organized crime, drug abuse, HIV-AIDS, and many refugee inflows resulting from insecurity on the Myanmar side of the border. So this is what we call a development insecurity nexus in the paper resulting from this economic relationship. And from 2011, the bilateral relationship, uh, in, in uh, no small part because of these problems, began to deteriorate and, and uh, Myanmar started to actively look for other partners around the, the world, as, as many of you here would know, I'm sure. So why? Okay, this is basically what the uh, paper is uh, trying to explain and what I'll spend the rest of the talk uh, describing in a bit more detail. Why is this happening? It's happening for two reasons, we argue. First is that capitalist development unlike uh, liberal and also technocratic illiberal understanding of development and, it, and its outcomes, is actually inherently conflict-ridden and crisis-prone, especially in its primitive accumulation phase, which is what we're seeing in, uh, in Myanmar. Okay? The second argument, and these are related but distinct, if you like, is that China has experienced considerable state transformation, which has meant that rather than Beijing directing economic engagement in Myanmar, 
much of what happened in Myanmar actually is the result of the activities of especially Yunnan province and associated state-owned companies, some other national state-owned companies operating via Yunnan, and also, um, to some extent, some private companies also linked with the, uh, with the uh, Yunnanese authorities and so on. Now, these activities have actually generated their own dynamics. They've created uh, considerable problems of coordination, um, and uh, I'll describe in a bit more detail. These agents, these actors, cannot necessarily be assumed to have the same agenda, and, and their activities have created problems that then the central government in Beijing has struggled to repair. So these are the two key dynamics that I'll be discussing here. The first one is capitalism and conflict. I'm not going to uh, talk about that too much. Um, but essentially, just to make the point that the link between capitalism and conflict is, of course, well established in the Marxist tradition and other traditions of political economy. Uh, however, ironically, it's completely absent uh, from the Chinese Communist Party's own ideas about development. Now, this is not entirely surprising. Uh, we're talking about um, a party that has essentially, since the 1970s, has incorporated capitalists, many of them former cadres or existing cadres, uh, into, uh, into its, uh, as, 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 as some of its uh, most important uh, uh, members. Uh, this is um, often associated uh, with... Uh, Zhang uh, Zemin's uh, Three Represents, the party needs to represent the most productive, if you like, social forces, in this case, usually capitalists. And therefore, the words class, class struggle, all those kinds of terms that are, if you like, Marxist, have actually been absent entirely from Chinese official discourse since the 1980s. Um, very rarely seen. It doesn't mean that Chinese uh, uh, leaders, technocrats, don't have any idea that you know, there is a link between capitalism and conflict, that capitalism creates uneven outcomes and therefore creates social conflict and so on. They're aware of that. However, um, they've developed their own, if you like, modernization uh, thesis. Modernization thesis in general argues that as countries and societies modernize, these problems are going to fall away. And this is basically what they're arguing. Okay, there are problems there now, but if we push, push along, if we keep going under the guidance of the party, we will get a harmonious society eventually. Um, and, and you can see that in a number of official publications that we've looked at. However, China's development uh, pattern has generated considerable conflict both at home and abroad. We've seen the incidents of uh, uh, peasant protests, of, uh, of uh, industrial conflict, of ethnic minorities having issues. We see at the moment, for instance, in Xinjiang having issues with party rule. We've seen that actually uh, uh, essentially uh, being a, a normal aspect of the development process in China. Um, and uh, in some cases, we've even seen the, the Chinese Communist Party provide some concessions, for instance, allowing labor to organize and a number of uh, other similar concessions. Um, abroad, the capacity of the central um, uh, leadership to actually mitigate some of these less savory aspects of, uh, of capitalist development has been even weaker than it has been inside China. I should probably add before I move on that uh, arguably, and we can discuss that later, one of the reasons why Xi Jinping's rule has become far more authoritarian than his predecessors is arguably to do with the increasing difficulty of managing these tensions that are emerging within China, within the Chinese party state and society at large. The second point, which is actually uh, the key point we're making in this wider project, is that Despite the fact that China is often seen as the quintessential Westphalian state where uh, rule is top-down authoritarian, coming right down from the top leadership to uh, every other aspect of the Chinese party state, 
Uh, we, we argue that that is actually not entirely the case. Not to say that the central leadership does not have any authority. We could discuss that uh, in, in detail, if you like, in the Q&A. But as a general process, we find that the Chinese party state has uh, fragmented, decentralized, and internationalized in the re in, during the reform era. And the relationship between the, the top leadership and these wider aspects of the party state, we describe as, if you like, a tug of war. So there are periods where decentralization or the, uh, um, the spreading of, uh, of, of power and authority to these wider aspects of the Chinese state is more pronounced, or there are areas where it's more pronounced, and there are other times and other areas where the, the central leadership managed to close back control a bit more. So it's, it's a kind of process that uh, it's, it's not fixed. It's a kind of, uh, if you like, an ongoing accommodation conflict. To, to, to negotiate where power is, who gets to do what. Now, the, the crucial aspect of this process of increasing fragmentation, decentralization, internationalization, which has been related to China's economic modernization process, is that we find a lot of new actors acting outside of Chinese borders than we used to in the past. Under Mao, there was a concerted effort to basically limit the extent to which other parts of the party state could engage internationally and concentrate foreign policy making within a very small number of hands. That has changed since then, um, and some of the change has been more formal and some of it has been more informal. But one of the key aspects that I think is worth mentioning is that, uh, for, for our purposes, is that provincial governments have acquired considerable capacity to negotiate uh, and act, especially in economic matters, outside of China's borders. And I'll get to that later when we discuss the case study a bit more. Now, the central leadership, as I mentioned, uh, remains uh, committed, I think, to trying to govern the country largely uh, uh, coherently from the top. But the, the way in which it happens uh, means that its capacity to do that is, is far from perfect, uh, and in many cases, uh, it, it's, it's actually quite, quite, uh, quite lacking. So one of the, uh, the, the mechanisms that we see, for instance, to cohere the wider party state is vague statements from the top leadership including things like the Belt and Road, uh, which when Xi Jinping made a statement was actually quite scant in detail. That then allows uh, some scope for other actors to come in and, and, and basically discuss you know, what they think is going on in the Belt and Road and how they would like to implement it. These various actors not, need not necessarily have the same interests, so we see different interpretations and different activities in practice. The second way in which uh, this, this wider complex is uh, somehow coordinated it's through a variety of leadership coordinated mechanisms, like the leading small groups, but increasingly there is an attempt actually to move beyond those as well into uh, centralized uh, party commissions, for instance, on foreign affairs or security on a number of other commissions. Now, these are very new developments. Their success is uncertain. But what is clear from these developments, especially the language that was used by the leadership to describe why they're even doing this in the first place, is that Chinese leaders are very well aware of their problem of actually uh, coordinating and controlling what happens within the wider party state, and therefore they argue that these mechanisms are required to overcome that problem. So the question now, I guess, is what, what's going to happen now that these mechanisms have actually been established, but for the purposes of any research that we can discuss in, in any confidence, like the stuff that's happened in the, say, previous 10 years, it's clear that this problem was there. And finally, there is an attempt to... Uh, uh, use party mechanisms especially to discipline cadres, uh, deny them promotion, arrest them, uh, also increasingly send inspection parties into different parts of the party state to try to pull them into line when they go off piece a bit too much. So these are the kinds of uh, mechanisms that are um, uh, at the hands of the centre, 
But nonetheless, we do find an increasing range of actors operating internationally, and I'll, I'll show you in the case of China and Myanmar. Okay, so we have the dynamic of state transformation on the one hand, we have the dynamic of uh, uh, the capitalism and conflict on the other hand. These dynamics intersect um, clearly in the case of Sino-Myanmar relations. Now, the way that they intersect is that cross-border economic engagement is often not centrally coordinated or planned, as we'll see in our case study. That is what's happened. The second is that Chinese actors often have different interests and agendas. Again, we see that in the case of Sino-Myanmar relations, what people at Yunnan wanted to do is not necessarily what Beijing wanted to happen. Um, and uh, Beijing's effort to try and rein, rein in some of those activities have not been very successful. Third, and I mentioned that before, provincial governments have come to play a very important role, especially in economic policy making. They often compete with each other. In fact, that was the very rationale of allowing them to act internationally uh, with a bit more freedom. Um, and uh, often they've been a little bit creative, if you like, in terms of exploiting that, uh, that freedom that was available to them. But they compete with each other. They have different cross-border networks. They network better to the world economy in different ways than they are to each other in many cases. And crucially, their focus pretty much entirely is on growth and economic development. They don't care much for the wider diplomatic agendas of the Chinese government. And we see that again clearly in our case study. And another aspect of the way the dynamics intersect is also the role of state-owned companies, whether provincial or national. These companies, again, are driven very much by profits and in many cases act quite unscrupulously. That's been widely documented in a number of studies. Uh, and in, in, in acting in this way, often they create diplomatic problems and headaches for the government as well. These dynamics are general dynamics of the Chinese policy-making process. However, arguably, they're uh, more common in situations where disengagement, this model of engagement is implemented in developing countries. And there are three reasons for this, and Myanmar exhibits all three of them. The first one is that these fragmented processes are not compensated by more robust governance processes in, ho in host states. So we have this really quite pragmatic, quite chaotic, in some cases uh, quite rapacious mode of engagement on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's not, it's, not, it's not balanced very well. A second aspect is that development opportunity are often in conflict-prone areas like uh, land use and resource development. Again, very much the case in Myanmar. Um, technically, uh, generally speaking, when um, the uh, Chinese actors engage in countries like Myanmar or Laos or, or a number of uh, countries with similar characteristics, they tend to be projects that are in energy uh, or mining or um, uh, you know, uh, various agricultural projects and so on. All of them involve issues that are quite contentious in those societies. And finally, um, high levels of poverty, inequality and poor representation of course increase social political instability. And now all these characteristics are present in Myanmar and therefore perhaps the uh, negative aspects of China's model of economic engagement uh, are very well represented in the case of Myanmar. Okay, so in the time that I've got, I'll go back uh, to, I'll, I'll go into the actual case study, which is Sino-Myanmar relations, and discuss that in a bit more detail. <coughs> Just show you how these dynamics manifest there. So in the case of Chinese uh, relations, economic uh, engagement with Myanmar, uh, the lead agency has been the pro provincial government of Yunnan. Not so much the Chinese central government in Beijing. Um, 
Also important, uh, but that will be a bit difficult in the time that I've got to discuss in detail, is actually the role of even sub-provincial governments at the level of the prefecture. Some of these are very, very large, and they have border areas that are sometimes 800 kilometres long, for instance, like uh, the Hong uh, prefecture, um, which is uh, one of the bigger prefectures in, in Yunnan province. As with other provincial governments in the reform era, um, the Yunnan provincial government has been allowed to pursue its independent economic policies abroad and also has been allowed some experimentation in how it does that. But also it's fair to say that its leaders have taken considerable liberty in how they interpret that, uh, that particular independence and leeway that they're afforded. Yunnan actually is the main agent that actually began, if you like, the, uh, the, uh, the opened economic relation between the two countries. Under Mao, um, and until actually until 1989, the border between Myanmar and, and China was largely sealed. Um, actually, not 1989, sorry, the early 1980s. And 1989 was when the Chinese uh, Communist Party basically dropped the, the Burmese Communist Party. But even before that, the, the border was basically sealed. And the, main, the initial efforts to actually open up the border were done by local level governments. Uh, initially, the, the Hong uh, uh, Prefecture government and then the Yunnan government established border trade zones in 1985, and then established a number of economic cooperation zones in 1990. These were only officially approved by the State Council in 1996. So there's quite a lot going on there before the uh, central government even got involved. There are also Yunnan commercial offices inside Myanmar. Um, and, uh, and there's been a number of other mechanisms that I'll discuss in a little while where Yunnan was the key um, the key agency. This was partly formalized in 1992 when Yunnan uh, became the lead Chinese agency in the so-called Greater Mekong sub-region, which is uh, an ADB-initiated project of regional economic integration. So Yunnan actually got, if you like, uh, at that point some kind of a formal role in, in expanding Chinese interests in the, um, in the Greater Mekong sub-region area, which includes Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam, the main countries around the, the, the Mekong catchment zone. But there's been considerable expansion after the initiation of the Greater uh, Western Development, um, the Great Western Development Campaign, which was in the early 2000s, because at that point the Yunnanese government began to press for greater for funding from the central government in order to drive further economic uh, integration with Southeast Asia, and it has been quite successful at doing that. And this predates the Belt and Road Initiative. So it lobbied. Uh, relentlessly for cross-border infrastructure and the argument that was made was that this infra infrastructure would then allow uh, the province to uh, build its own economy which as I mentioned previously is relatively underdeveloped and like that of most western provinces in China. So by 2011 it received 38.5 billion dollars from the central government to build cross-border infrastructure. Again this predates the Belt and Road Initiative by a number of years and from 2011 to 2015 Again, 79 billion US dollars. And, and similar trends are still uh, are obviously relevant today with the Belt and Road Initiative. Many of these projects, as I mentioned, were put forward as serving the wider Chinese national interest, but in fact actually ended up serving a very local interest within Yunnan. Probably the best example of that is the 4.3 billion gas pipeline that goes from Yunnan province to uh, Myanmar's uh, west coast. This project was already uh, initiated in the early 2000s by Yunnan academics arguing that it would be a good idea. Then the Yunnan government and Chinese uh, energy company CNPC 
went to uh, the central government uh, to lobby for funding. The National Development and Reform Commission said that we don't want to do this, there's no point in this project. But then, from around 2004, Hu Jintao, uh, the uh, Chinese president, uh, began talking about China's energy security problems. And then, the Yunnan government and CNPC rebadged the project as an energy security project for China, went back to the central government, that time got it approved, and it was built. However, the idea that it serves uh, Chinese energy security uh, is, is very dubious at best. Uh, this pipeline allegedly serves no more than 2% of, of China's uh, imports of, uh, of, uh, of gas, and therefore it, it's a very small part of the, of the wider picture. But what it does do, it provides cheap hydrocarbons for Yunnan's uh, emerging um, chemical, petrochemical industry. Uh, which um, is not how it was sold to the central governments. This is just one example of the role that Yunnan provinces have, uh, the Yunnan provinces has taken in actually moulding um, some national government agendas and repackage them in ways that serve local interests. Now, the way in which Yunnan province has led engagement with Myanmar, as, as I'll describe in a bit more detail, has actually created recurring tensions between the centre and the province. From 2001 until uh, present time, three party secretaries from Yunnan were purged by the central government in that period. Um, and uh, I think, if, if anything, that will demonstrate that the central government is not entirely happy with the way that uh, Yunnan leadership is conducting itself. And most of these purges were related to uh, corrupt uh, conduct uh, and, and to not implementing central party dictates. And, and, and by and large, this was related to Yunnan's behaviour in Myanmar. All right, so Yunnan's efforts have actually, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, created considerable economic integration between uh, Yunnan province and, and Myanmar, um, which sometimes are reflected in wider Chinese statistics, but if you look at actual Yunnan statistics, you'd find that the role of Yunnan province specifically is very significant. I mentioned some of these figures before, but just to give you an idea, from 1980 to 2015, exports to Myanmar from Yunnan 126 million to 16.2 billion dollars, imports from 40 million to 7.9 billion. Yunnan and Myanmar are now each other's biggest trading partners. Um, so the relationship with Myanmar is very important for Yunnan province. And around two thirds of Yunnan's overseas investment stock is in the greater Mekong subregion. Most of it is in Myanmar. I couldn't find better statistics, but this is what we were told um, that most of that money is actually in Myanmar. Now, border trade these days is conducted largely in the renminbi, uh, and, uh, and it's sort of become, uh, if, if you like, the, the main currency in the borderlands area, replacing the, uh, the chat, the, um, the uh, Malaysian currency. Alongside that, we've also seen an expansion of the Yunnanese state, if you like, the, uh, the, the provincial authorities, into Myanmar, taking increasingly proactive roles in shaping how governance occurs within Myanmar. There are a number of, uh, of committees. Uh, I think probably the best example would, for that would be uh, the Committee for the Joint Administration of, of, of the Border Zone and also the Joint Coordination Committee of Mekong Commercial Vessels and Sailing. So these give Yunnanese agencies some kind of a role within how, Yunnan it's, uh, how Myanmar itself is governed internally. We've also seen, and I'm not going to have time to talk about that, but I'll be more than happy to describe that in the uh, Q&A. We've seen Yunnanese agencies increasingly engage in managing non-traditional security problems on the Myanmar side of the border. 
very direct relations between police forces, joint patrols on the Mekong, raids on casinos, and a variety of uh, opium substitution programs. Again, I'm happy to elaborate on that, but I don't have time for it right now. Okay, but as I mentioned at the beginning, this extensive economic engagement has created security problems on both sides of the border. And these problems have come to a point where they've actually undermined the bilateral relationship between the two countries. And this is because the projects, the kind of economic engagement that Yunnan drives inside China tends to be highly rapacious and extractive and focuses largely on mega projects involving land grabs in many cases and considerable environmental degradation. And these have exacerbated existing uh, social-political instabilities within Myanmar to create considerable problems. Now, state transformation dynamics are actually key to, uh, to explaining both how the process has occurred, but why the central government has struggled to actually do something about it. The crucial context for this is the context of the long-standing um, and, and sort of uh, uh, the ebb and flow of civil war within Myanmar between the central government and a very large number of ethnic minority groups, many of them concentrated around the border with China. Um, now, these uh, civil wars probably go back to the late 1940s when uh, uh, Burma then became an independent state. But over the years, the central government, especially after the rise of military junta in 1988, uh, the way that they managed to resolve these problems partly has been through what, they, what has been described as ceasefire capitalism, which are joint ventures between the leaders of these groups and key military figures and also uh, investors from other countries, especially China and Thailand. Perhaps unsurprisingly for those in these rooms, the benefits from these projects have accrued highly unevenly. Uh, the people that have benefited the most from this were actually the leaders involved um, and cronies, uh, the population living in those areas has experienced uh, considerable dislocation in many cases, the destruction of their habitats, in, in some cases land grabs, losing their land and so on. So this is the wider context. And then Chinese engagement comes into that context and actually exacerbates it, if you like. So Chinese um, economic engagement in the paper will describe three ways in which it has exacerbated these tensions within Myanmar. The first is by exacerbating non-traditional security challenges like drugs, organized crime, AIDS, <coughs> piracy on the Mekong, and illegal gambling. Many of these problems actually have affected the Chinese side as well. Probably uh, the, the best publicized incident in 2011, 13 Chinese sailors on the Mekong were kidnapped by an organized crime group, I feel like pirates, uh, were tortured and then killed, and that created considerable outcry within China to do something about that. But there are a number of other examples. Uh, the number of drug users within China, for instance, has skyrocketed uh, since the border has been opened up. Now, Chinese project, this is the second one. Chinese projects are associated with land grabbing and environmental degradation. And these aspects began undermining the, the uh, ceasefires that were negotiated with these ethnic groups. And the third is that there's been a very high level of uh, cross-border smuggling that, again, was seen by the government in uh, Nepido to be actually sp uh, sponsoring some of these uh, um, uh, ethnic groups around the borderlands. The numbers are quite staggering. I've got some statistics there, but they estimate around 94% of timber is actually smuggled across the border rather than done in, in the right way. 58% of the J trade. Now, Beijing has repeatedly said to the, the Myanmar government that it will not allow this kind of smuggling to occur. But it has been unable to do that because of the cooperation of the local authorities in that part of China, which again created tensions between the two countries.
The moment of crisis came in 2011, and it was related to a very large uh, Irrawaddy hydropower project, which was meant to build seven dams, uh, most of them in Kachin State in the north of Myanmar. It was implemented by Yunnan subsidiary of uh, China Power Investment, which is a very large SOE, and it had a very strong backing of the Yunnan government. The worst moment came when uh, now CPI uh, took, a, if you like, a cowboy approach to the whole project. It basically uh, did not undertake any significant environmental and social safeguard study. In fact, it didn't even implement the very low standards that were required by the Myanmar government and, and by the Chinese government as well. So it completely did it its own thing, if you like, yeah, on the Myanmar side. And the trigger was the so-called Mitsun Dam, which was uh, located really close to a holy catching site. Now, this particular project then fed into the underlying grievances where they were building up for quite a long time, especially among the ordinary Kachin, basically quite angry with their leadership for benefiting from some of these projects. And then a new generation of leaders came to control the Kachin Independence Organization, basically broke, uh, broke the ceasefire agreement and resumed civil war in that part of, uh, of, uh, of Myanmar. The trouble was that actually its grievances were quite popular with the ordinary Burmans because it uh, highlighted how this project was destructive to its environment and, uh, and was uh, um, you know, dislocating uh, people off their land and so on. As a result, the, the, the Myanmar government suspended the project in 2011, and since then the bilateral relations have been in crisis. You can see here, in 2010, levels of, in, of investment from China in Myanmar dropped uh, with 1.4 billion, dropping to 70 million in 2014. And I think anyone that's been following the region would, would have known that the Myanmar government has been very active since then in trying to encourage other investors, including the West, to invest uh, in Myanmar and trade with Myanmar. Beijing, as a result, was also forced to change its policy towards Myanmar. It, up until that point, said that it will not get involved in domestic matters in Myanmar, but then it was forced to intervene to try and negotiate a peace agreement between the warring sides within Myanmar. And subsequently as well, we've seen uh, uh, Communist Party disciplinary mechanisms increasingly directed, uh, it, it's not the first time, but increasingly directed at Yunnan, trying to basically tighten the ship a bit, uh, whether that be successful is, is, at this point, hard to say, but there have been a number of purges uh, of party leaders in 2016 and 2017, and also some purges uh, with the particular uh, SOE involved in the project. In conclusion, so we've seen what happened between uh, China and Myanmar. Greater economic engagement, which has undoubtedly occurred, did not create the Chinese peace and interdependence. It created the reverse. It created the reverse for two reasons, as I mentioned, both because of the nature of that Chinese economic engagement in those countries, also because of the characteristics of countries like Myanmar that exacerbate the implications of this model of engagement. Key to that with the conflictual nature of capitalism in general, which is particularly uh, a problem in cases of, um, uh, uh, you know, in early stages, if you like, of primitive accumulation, which is what we're seeing here, and also the dynamics of state transformation, which have meant that Chinese engagement in Myanmar were actually largely driven from below and, generally speaking, uncoordinated and quite destructive. So the, the lesson for the wider Belt and Road, of course, we're going to look at all this stuff in, in particular contexts. In some contexts, it may not have the similar, uh, similar effects, because, uh, for instance, in this case, the, the problem of ethnic uh, conflict has been long-standing and 
long predated uh, the, the Chinese uh, engagement in, uh, in, in Myanmar. But it, it is clear that some of the basic expectations of the Chinese government from the Belt and Road may not be realized, as the Myanmar case indicates. I'm going to leave it there um, and return it to you and for Q&A. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.